You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. If you were with us last week, you know we ushered in the new year looking at the entire Exodus chapter 5. Um, and we saw Moses and Aaron showing back up in Egypt um, communicating with the people, but then going before Pharaoh uh, after experiencing that spiritual high of the people of Israel responding, believing, and trusting. They go before uh, Pharaoh and they experience failure, which we looked at last week was exactly what was promised, right? Um, but they experience failure in unique and specific ways that maybe they hadn't anticipated. And it brings a level of discouragement both to them and the people because the people endure the hardships of that failure. Moses says, let, let the people go. Pharaoh says, no way. And if you think you have time to worship, then we'll make your work harder. And so he takes the straw away from their ability to make bricks and yet still expects them to make bricks. And so we saw last week, if you don't know the Lord, then you won't trust the Lord when his plans seem to be failing. But if you will expect trials to come and expect him to be working faithfully in those troubles, you will find all the help you need in 2023. So as we look into this new year, we talked about trials and challenges and troubles and difficulties coming, just as they were promised to Moses and Aaron that, hey, you're going to go back and we're going to bring the people out of Israel, but it's not going to be easy. There's going to be challenges. He made those promises in a general sense. And then when things got very specific, that's when their, their heads started to spin and they started to, to, to spiral into discouragement and to despair. We talked about how we need to know the revealed Lord that Pharaoh, remember in his conversations with Moses says, I don't know your God and I'm not going to obey your God. We have a responsibility to know our Lord, to respond to his authority, to trust his promises, to obey his commands. Um, that's our responsibility as we go into this new year, to be knowing him and to be obeying him. We talked about anticipating the unexpected. We talked about last week how we all understand that Scripture promises that in this new year, while it comes with lots of hope and lots of anticipation of new things to come, that we should expect to be challenged and to be tried and to be troubled at times as well. The new year certainly brings about a lot of positive thinking about changes that can be made. Um, but we certainly need to anticipate the challenges that will come this year too, to know that they're promised, to know that we'll experience them, and to turn our trust to Him when they come. And so we talked about expecting trouble to come, expecting plans to not succeed as you had hoped, but to see the Lord as being faithful. We talked about turning to the right help. We saw how the Israelites start to uh, turn away from God and they turn to Pharaoh for their help, right? Instead of crying out to God for deliverance, they're now crying out to Pharaoh for deliverance. They abandon their help. Uh, Moses blames his help, right? He comes to God and begins to put responsibility on God. You said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. Where are you in the midst of all of this? And so we talked about turning to the right help, that when things become a stinky mess, because the Hebrew said, we've become a stink to Pharaoh, You've made us stinky in his eyes. What are you going to do about this? When things become a stinky mess this year, we're to fight discouragement and despair by running to the Lord with spiritual supporters in 2023. We said that the people shouldn't have run away from Moses and Aaron. They should have been running to them as their spiritual leaders. Hey, connect me to God. Help me to understand how I don't need to despair 
in this spot. And so we talked about how we need that community in our life. We need the local church. We need local spiritual leaders within our church, friends, accountability partners, those that can help remind us when we're tempted to despair. Today we look at Exodus chapter 6 and God's response to Moses' accusations. So looking back at verse 22 in chapter 5, we'll start reading there and then we're going to focus our attention in chapter 6. It says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Again, we said that trials were promised. It's not going to be easy. Pharaoh's heart's going to become hardened. It's going to be difficult, right? Um, He didn't tell him specifically how, though. He didn't tell them that, hey, when you show up, he's going to reject you and take the straw away, and the people are going to get angry at you and question your leadership. He didn't give them the specifics, and so when the specifics hit, he gets gets thrown into despair, and he comes asking why, as though what he's already been told by God isn't enough, right? So he comes saying, God, I'm going to need more information. You're going to have to tell me why, right? Why is all of this happening? Why are you doing it this way? We talked about how we've been promised trials. And when the specifics hit, we can't, we can't fall into despair, right? We have to turn back to really what we know, because as we're going to see today, God doesn't give him anything new. He just reverts his attention back to what he already knows, right? And so we talked specifically last week about challenges that we could face this year, challenges that we've already faced. And I specifically mentioned miscarriages last year. And then a day later, Lauren and I are going through our own miscarriage once again. I can, I can stand here today and tell you I don't need new information from God for how to process that loss. I just need to go back to what I already know. Right? I just need to go back to what, what I already have been told and remind myself, here's how I process the trials and troubles that are promised to me. Here, here's how I handle that. Here's how I navigate that. And that's what God tells Moses here. Look in chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God." who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Our summary sentence for today, trials and troubles are promised generally and then specifically come in unique ways. But general promises can sustain us if we choose to believe those promises, even if the specific follow-up questions we ask are never fully answered. 
Trials and troubles are promised generally and then specifically come in unique ways. But general promises can sustain us if we choose to believe those promises, even if the specific follow-up questions we ask are never fully answered. For our kids, God's promises help us face hard times. Moses comes back. Remember, he's already had the burning bush experience. He's already heard from God and, and been given specific instructions. But he comes back asking why. He comes back asking for more. And what we see is that God really gives him nothing in addition to. He, he doesn't provide anything that he hasn't already said. Now, is it said a little bit differently? Sure. Is it kind of repackaged a little bit? Yes. But the core truths remain the same. He is reiterating what he has already told Moses. The people are frustrated. They're turning on Moses. Moses is discouraged and he's tempted to turn on God. And God doesn't take the, take the time to answer one of his why questions. Doesn't stop for a moment to answer any of the whys. Right? So as our specific troubles start to hit this week, as, as we entered into 2023, you could, probably, you could probably share your own difficulties that you experienced this week in light of what we heard last week in our sermon. Right? Those specific things come. And we are very tempted to say, why, Lord? Like, why me? Why now? Why this incident? Why again? Whatever it may be, we're asking why, usually immediately when we're faced with that trial. Right? Moses does the same thing. Moses plays the part well. He says, why, Lord? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this? And God doesn't stop to answer the why. Moses files the complaint. God, you aren't doing what you promised. Why? And God chooses not to justify, but instead he just reminds he doesn't try to justify himself or his actions. He doesn't justify why he made it harder on the Hebrews. He doesn't justify his actions at all. He just refers Moses back to what's already been said. It's like a teacher who's, who's instructing in the classroom. Child raises his hand, answers a question, and says, hey, I've already answered that. I've already looked at the board. Like it's, it's, it's in your notes. Like We've already talked about this. Right? That's, that's how God kind of approaches it here. He doesn't give him new information. The content of these verses, 1 through 9, serve as a reminder for reinforcing our faith. It's not new content. It's not new revelation. Instead, it's just reminders of what he's already said. Now, it was new content and new revelation at the burning bush, right? That was new. Now, it's just reminders of what he's already said. There's times where you may come on a Sunday morning and hear something that you've never heard of, pending where you're at in your faith journey. That specifically would apply to, to even uh, the most mature of us when we come to passages of Scripture that maybe we've, we've uh, focused on less in our spiritual journey, right? So when we're going through the book of Revelation, probably everybody felt like they were learning like a lot of new stuff because it's not a book that you typically go to in your own daily devotions, right? Um, so there's times where you come and you hear new stuff, stuff that you've not ever heard before, stuff you've not ever learned before. But the bulk of the times as you continue to grow in your faith, when you come on a Sunday morning, it's probably not new information that you've never heard before. It's just reminders of what you've already been told. But our nature is such where we need those reminders regularly, right? Like we don't graduate out of needing to be gathering together. Hebrews 10 says, let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Right? As the day draws near, we've got to be gathering more and more together so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're prone to forget. In this section here, he reminds him of his name. He reminds him of the family history. He reminds him that he's a covenant-keeping God with a plan. He reminds him that he's got land promises to give to him. He reminds them that he knows their suffering. 
It's all the same stuff he told him at the burning bush. Nothing new here. He simply reinforces that his plan won't be stopped and that everything he has already said and promised has not changed. That's the important thing that I want you to hear today is that Moses faces a specific trial and God, as loud as he can be, says, nothing has changed. I still am who I am and I'm still doing what I've been doing, right? Like that's what God was encouraging me with uh, the, the first day of this week when Lauren and I began to process that loss. It's that, hey, I'm still the same God. I'm still doing what I've always been doing. Nothing has changed. Has your circumstances changed? Yeah. H- have what you thought was going to happen changed? Yeah. But, but he hasn't changed, right? And what he has promised hasn't changed. The promises provide hope for what is to come and help during what's currently happening. Promises provide hope for what's to come and help during what is currently happening. We need help to hope when his timing fills off, right? For Moses, the timing's off. Where's your deliverance? You said you're going to deliver the people and you haven't. Moses says, or God says, Moses, I've made these promises to you. This is what you're to hope in. And those promises are to help you right now when the timing seems off. The fact that he reminds him only shows how important the content is and how sufficient it is as well. This is the content that is needed to not break. Look what happens to the people in verse 9. They're broken. They have a broken spirit because of their harsh slavery. Their circumstances are harsh and it's broken their spirit. But notice that there's no failure on God in any of this. God is who he is. He's doing what he's doing. The failure falls on the people. They don't listen. They don't believe. God's the one who remains faithful throughout this story. A lot of times we need to be reminded of what we already know in order to apply it to all aspects of our life. Right? We we get the general promises, but do we apply those general promises to the specific things that we see in our own life? I put in my notes, our understanding of his sovereignty must move from the theological to the practical. Our understanding of his sovereignty must move from the theological to the practical. Just like we said last week, we all believe that trials and difficulties and troubles will come. And then when they show up, we lose our minds. We're like, why is this happening, right? Like, like I consider myself to be faithful. Why are bad things happening to me if I'm being faithful, Right? But the the same is true when we talk about God's sovereignty. We say he's in control, that he's wise, that he's good. And then when we need to rely on that, that's exactly what we're questioning. Is he really in control? Is he really good? Right? Like we have to move the general things that we know about God, the things that we would all affirm and say yes to on a Sunday morning to the Mondays and the Tuesday mornings that we're able to apply his sovereignty to the practical aspects of our life, right? Our church is called Sovereign Hope because his sovereignty, his control is our daily hope. And our ultimate hope is that he is coming back, that he's coming back for us, that this isn't the best that we'll ever experience. This is the worst that we'll ever experience. And we're hopeful for his return. That aspect of sovereign hope, it's a lifestyle that we want for our church, that we're constantly hoping in his sovereignty, that he is in control. So that when specific trials come, we trust that God works all things for the good of his people, like Romans eight twenty eight tells us. 
when circumstances aren't desirable, when we would choose to do things differently, he's all, we believe that he's always using circumstances to shape us into the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. I would choose different circumstances this week if it was up to me. I would choose for our life to be playing out differently if it was up to me. But I trust that he's conforming both me, my wife, and my children into the image of his son. And so I trust the circumstances. When troubles seem uh, more than I can bear, he is my place to go to for renewal. Psalm chapter 55. Psalm chapter 55. Verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. When troubles seem more than I can bear, he's my place to go to for renewal. Trials and troubles are promised. They're promised to all believers. They're going to come to you in specific ways, unique ways, that are going to look different than me. Like the trials that you experienced this week, different than the ones I'm experiencing. But we're, we're, we're falling under the same umbrella of, promise, of, of troubles being promised to believers. We also follow under, fall under the same umbrella that those trials will be used to, to strengthen our faith, to conform us to the image of his son. Now, I believe that it's the general promises of God that sustain both of us in our unique specific situations, right? You don't need to hear audibly from God answers to your why questions to survive one more week. He's given us what we need in his word. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But we have to be reminded of it. We have to know it. <clears throat> As we jump into our text today, I want to give you three, three truths that we hang on to as we come into this new year that help us to, to fix our faith when it's frustrated, to, to draw our attention back to the things that we need to know when we're frustrated with how things are maybe playing out. When times are tough and you're tempted to despair in your discouragement, these are the truths to hang on to. Number one, we remember that God remains in control. We remember that God remains in control. Again, that's not a new truth. That's not something that most of you have never heard before. It's something that you hear regularly here at this church, but it's something that we have to be reminded of because if we're not careful, the first thing we think of isn't that he's in control when something bad happens to us. We ask why. God remains in control. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. I mean, right off the bat, what that implies is not God has been off in his timing. It's that we've been waiting on Moses and the people to get right in theirs, right? It's like, God's like, hey, now we're ready to do something, right? Now that you guys have hit rock bottom, now that you guys feel like there is no hope and there is despair and nothing can fix this, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh, right? Like it's not God who's been, who's been having to, to get ready and get prepared. It's the people, it's Moses, it's everybody else that's been having to get to a point where the timing was right. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Number one, the delays by God are always part of his design. The delays by God are always part of his design. He's setting the stage to show his power. Think about, um, 
If you've ever been to, to a, like a magician's show or have you ever seen somebody work a magic trick, they typically try to remove all ways that you would explain what happened, right? So if they're, gonna, if they're trying to show something disappears or something can be sawn in half or whatever, right? They're going to go to great lengths to show you there's nothing up my sleeves or this box is solid wood or there's nothing underneath. Like they try to remove all possibilities that the, the greatest skeptic in the, in the audience would use to disprove what they see, right? Now, they're not really working powerful acts before you. There, there's something that you're missing, but through the diversion, you're kind of you're thinking like, man, there's no explanation for what they do, right? Because they've shown me all the expl- explanations, and they discounted them all, right? It's, it's, like that's what's God, it's like that's what God's doing as he gets ready to do the Exodus. He's removing all possible explanations for how this could be given credit to anybody but him, right? Like he, he's making it such where it's obvious that he's the one who gets the credit for it. The deterioration of the situation is just part of the preparation for what God's going to do. The troubles only prove that he alone can save, that they need him. Think about if Pharaoh had, if, if Moses had walked in and caught Pharaoh on a good day and he said, you know what, that's a pretty good idea. Take the people, y'all go worship. Don't come back if you don't even want to. Who cares, right? Moses would have walked out and said this and it would have been very easy for the people to, to make a golden image out of Moses and worshiped him because for 400 years we haven't been able to get free and you walk in and have one conversation with the guy and ask him to let us go and he says yes, like you're the greatest leader of all time, right? But what does Moses do? He walks in and Pharaoh's like, negative, not a chance. It's about to get harder. He walks out and tells the people, and they're like, you're the worst leader of all time, right? Like, like did you really think that was going to work? You were just going to go in and ask him after 400 years to let us go, right? Like, you're the worst leader. Like, we want somebody else. Like, you're awful. And God's like, now we're ready. Now we're ready to do this because you guys recognize this is going to take supernatural power, supernatural effort to make it happen. If he he had just voluntarily let him go or if it had come with very little effort, this story would not be as special as it is. We have to learn not to doubt the timetable of God. We have to play the long game with him because that's what he's interested in, the long game of how this all plays out. Number two, the perceived power of the enemy is always provided power. The perceived power of the enemy is always provided power. Why is that important? Because it's the other side of the coin. When we say God is in control, we're also saying nobody else is, right? It's not that God has an equal rival and we're kind of waiting to see how it plays out. And the bulk of the time we get lucky that God wins, right? It's not like watching your favorite football team who's having a great season who just keeps winning, right? And you think like we can never lose. There's still the chance you can lose, right? Um, you, just, you just get so used to winning that you're like, maybe we can't lose, but there's still that threat of losing. We don't have the threat of losing in following our God, right? He's the all-time champion winner. He never loses, and there really is no ever threat to him, that's the important piece for understanding. As, as, we, as we sit there on a Monday morning and we process our trials and our challenges, we say God is in control, but we also have to say the enemy is not, right? The enemy is not in control. There's only one sovereign in this story, and it isn't Pharaoh. 
not only do we take comfort that God is in control and that God wins, we take comfort as well in that the enemy has no real power, right? We fast forward to the book of Revelation. It isn't us getting lucky or us winning by a close call in the end, right? Think about what we studied in 2 Thessalonians 2 um, last spring with our D groups. It's the fact that when Jesus comes back, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he extinguishes the greatest evil of all time. The man of lawlessness is defeated at the breath of our coming king. It's not even close, right? Yes, God remains in control, and the enemy is never close to being in control. Remember, that's the whole point of what we saw at the end of this in Exodus chapter 9 last week, kind of how we finished last week's sermon, is that God does give an explanation eventually for what he's been up to. Exodus nine fifteen. for by now I could have put out of my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. You would have been cut off from the earth, talking to Pharaoh. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He said, I'm doing it this way so that my name is made great in all the earth. Remember that God remains in control his delays are by design, and the perceived power of the enemy is power that he gives to the enemy. It's not power that exists in the enemy itself. The enemy has no real power. Number two, remember God remains committed. When times are tough and you're tempted to despair in your discouragement, these are the truths to hang on to, that God is in control and that God remains committed to his people. These are things that don't change on a Monday morning. He hasn't lost control and he hasn't stopped being committed to you. Verse two, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I've remembered my covenant. He's still committed. He's still committed. Number one, God is committed to keeping his promises to his people. He's committed to keeping his promises to his people. That covenant language that's found here, it's him binding himself to us. And by the us, it extends all the way back to the people of Genesis. So he's, he's, he's binding himself to us as New Testament believers, and he's bound himself to the people in Genesis the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, even people prior to that when he made the promise to Adam and Eve that I'm going to send someone to defeat the serpent, right? When guys like Seth and the, the faithful line were following God, he bound himself to his people with covenant. His wins and his lack of failure today are still tied to those cloud of witnesses that Hebrews talks about who anxiously are watching and waiting with him. Right? You've, got, you've got believers of all time that are in heaven that are waiting to come with him to unite with the faithful that are on the earth at that time. It's what we studied this past week at C Group. We'll study it more in D Group going forward. That he's coming, that he's bringing our loved ones with him. Right? For, for all of you that have ever had to endure a miscarriage, Laura and I were talking about this. Like, like you, you wrestle with, like, would I just rather not have ever been pregnant? right? I'll tell you, like, all those whys will be answered on the day when Jesus comes, and he's bringing all of our loved ones, even the ones we've never met with him, to rule and reign with him for all eternity. Then you're going to be like, hey, that was worth it. 
That, that was worth the trial. It was worth the difficulty at that moment, right? He's bound himself to all of us. He's covenanted himself to us. They're waiting for this to happen. And we're the ones that need reminders of this. Not God. He knows. He knows and he's waiting and, and, and he's watching and he's working. We're the ones who need to be reminded of this. Psalm chapter 105. Psalm chapter 105, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, he sworn, his sworn promises to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. This is God's people, and we are a part of it. Remember, Galatians tells us we may not be Jewish, but if we're by faith entering into his family, we are part of Abraham's offspring. We are a part of his people, and we should give thanks to him. We should remember his wondrous works. We should sing of them. I remember growing up for our youth, like you may wonder sometimes, like, why do we, why do we sing at church, right? Like, why do we all stand up and sing together? It feels awkward. We don't ever do this in any other setting, typically. Like, why do we do this? We do this to help us remember, because the songs that we sing are particularly chosen by those who lead us in worship today. Thankful for Dale and, and Jesse, who were able to do that for us. We have several of our worship team that's out sick. They choose the songs carefully to give us the truths that we need to know, to be reminded of. They do their best to tie that in with exactly what we're going to look at in Scripture. Why? So that it all works together as a big reminder that we know His wondrous works, so that on Monday morning we don't forget them. He's committed to keeping His promises to His people. And number two, He's committed to redeeming the predicaments of His people. Yeah, the children of Israel are in a predicament here. They're in slavery. They're in bondage. And he knows. He remembers. He hasn't forgotten. Just like he said in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he knows the oppression. And this new oppression, the hard labor that's been applied, he hasn't forgotten, nor is it new information to him. It hasn't gone unnoticed. He knows, and he's committed. He's just as committed to us today as he was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's just as committed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today as he was back then. Because it's still one big story. The story hasn't ended for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Like, they're not off the scene. They're not gone. As believers, we believe that their souls are with Jesus right now in heaven. But they're not in their final state. They're wanting their bodies. They want their glorified bodies. Like, they're not up there saying, like, hey, we could stay like this forever and we'd be fine. No, they are anxiously waiting for creation to be redeemed, for new bodies to be given. Right? Like, like the story hasn't ended. Right? Like I'll, I'll watch Georgia play a national championship game tomorrow, and I've already figured out in my mind, like, hey, if we lose, it'll be disappointing, but it's kind of okay because we won last year, and that was pretty awesome. Right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't sitting around going, hey, like there's some believers that are going through trials right now. If they don't win, that's eh, okay because we won. 
Like they don't see themselves as being victorious yet. Their story hasn't ended. Like they're still a part of what's playing out today. Jesus still has to come back for this story to come to an end in this time and usher us into eternity. That's the commitment level that we can hang our hats on, that he is committed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not gone. They're still waiting for this story to come to a a, a finality when Jesus comes back. Notice how he says that in the past, uh, his people knew him as God Almighty, but they didn't know him as Yahweh. It's kind of confusing, and and there's not necessarily a clear answer for us today as to what was meant by that. Because if you go back and read Genesis, you'll see that the name Yahweh is found in Genesis. So so what's happening there? Did Did they know him by Yahweh or not? There's probably two best explanations for it, and maybe they both go together. One could be that they didn't know his name as Yahweh, but when Moses wrote Genesis, he did. And so when he writes it, he writes that back into the story because he has that revelation. That would be one way of understanding what it means by God to say, I didn't reveal myself in this way. The other would be that there are specific things, think about where we're at in the timetable of Revelation, there are specific things that God was going to do for his people as Yahweh in this setting where he's going to rescue them from slavery, ways that the people in Genesis had never really understood him, right? Like we've talked about progressive revelation. The people early in history were learning things about God fresh and new, whereas we on this back end of the New Testament, we've already been given everything. So nothing's really new. We're just being told of things of old, right? So two ways of understanding that one Moses writes the term Yahweh back in because he does know God that way. And so when he writes Genesis years later, he writes the name in. Or two, they did know him as Yahweh. They just didn't know him in this way like the people were about to know him because he was about to do new things, unique things, special things that he hadn't previously done for a group of people like this. Either way, we can trust and remember that God remains committed to his people. He is a covenant-keeping God, and he reminds Moses that has not changed. And then lastly, number three, these truths that we want to hang on to when times are tough and we're tempted to despair in our discouragement, to remember that God remains compassionate, that he remains compassionate to his people. He hears the groaning of the people of Israel. I've remembered my covenant And look what he says in verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I'm the Lord. And I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give to you for a possession. I am the Lord. His identity leads him into action. You'll notice this section is filled with I am and I will statements. Because of who he is, he will. Notice how his identity drives what he does. Who he is determines what he does. I am, I will. He will free us. Just as God saved Israel from their slavery to Egypt, God does and will save us from our slavery to sin. He promised to save them. He did save them. He promises to save us. He will save us. He says, tell them this. I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. 
Secondly, he will claim us. It says that he will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. You may be familiar with the, um, the kinsman redeemer concept. It's super familiar to us if you've uh, read the book of Ruth and kind of understand how that whole scenario plays out where um, Ruth marries into the, uh, the Israelite people, loses her spouse, um, her and her mother-in-law come back to, to, to live in Israel, and it's Boaz who, who steps in as the kinsman redeemer. If you're not familiar with what that means, the kinsman redeemer was the, the obligated relative who was supposed to step in when family members got in trouble right? It's the individual who was supposed to step in when, when a family member was maybe killed. He was the one uh, that was obligated to make sure that justice happened in that situation, right? So as the, as the kind of the patriarch or the, or the next in line, he was the one that was supposed to take responsibility to make sure that our family's name is protected. If somebody's hurt or harmed, we're going to make sure justice comes. He would also have been the one who was obligated to, if a family member fell into uh, uh, financial difficulties, and maybe even had to sell portions, sell portions of their land. He was the one that was supposed to make sure it didn't stay out of the family's hands for long. He needed to go purchase that and get that back into the family and help provide for his extended family. Uh, if a family member died without an heir, he was supposed to step in and make sure that that, that man's name continued. That's the picture of the kinsman redeemer. This is the first time really that the concept of redemption shows up in God's word. So if you're reading from Genesis to Revelation, this is the first time the concept of being redeemed shows up. It's introduced here. And, and this is before the kinsman redeemer part of the law that will come after the Exodus, right? So the kinsman redeemer is something that comes as part of the giving of the law to Israel. This is how you'll function as a people, as a society. God sets the tone for that by being our kinsman redeemer here. He's going to step in and make us his own. He's going to adopt us into his people. He's going to avenge for us. He's going to redeem the enslaved. He's going to provide for, for us as his now relatives at personal loss to him. Right? So think about the kinsman redeemer. It costs him to be a kinsman redeemer. Right? Like it's not cheap to do the things that I just told you he would have to do. He might have to, have, he might have, to have hire lawyers. He may have court expenses to make sure that justice happens in the death of a relative. Right? He, he's going to have to potentially sell or, or spend money that he has to secure land back for his family. He's going to have to take on the responsibility of, of, of providing an heir and now caring for that heir for a family member who was lost. That's what his responsibility was, and it came at personal loss. God steps in as our kinsman redeemer. He redeems us and makes us his own. This is the first time, too, that we see the idea, the concept of him saying, um, I will take you to be my people. Because remember, up to this point, Genesis up till this point in Exodus, it's been individuals who said yes to him. It's been Abraham's family of 70 who said yes to him. And now we're talking about a legit people. A legit people that we still see in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 a people that we're now a part of as well. Revelation chapter 21. We'll start in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I can't read that without thinking about like the end of the, the Lord of the Rings saga, where like all of the evil and all of the devastation has seemingly been done away with. And there's just like, and if you've ever seen the last Lord of the Rings, the extended version, it feels like there's like five endings to that movie because there's so much celebration at the end of that movie for victory being attained, right? But you read this and it's just so glorious to see. It's like everything we've been hoping for happens, right? There we are at the end. We're his people and we're with him and there is no more evil and there is no more reason to cry. There are no more troubles. There are no more trials and there are no more difficulties. Like we've reached the end of the story and Abraham's there and Isaac's there and Jacob's there and everybody else in between is there. And it's a huge celebration because the story for this time has come to an end and a whole new story is about to be written. And it's a different story moving forward because all the things that we've dealt with heartache-wise aren't a part of those details. They're not a part of it, right? And that's what we hope for. That's what, we're, that's what we're leaning into on a Monday and a Tuesday when things feel hard right now is that we're coming to this end eventually. He claims us as his people. He'll bless us just as God promised Israel a life they did not earn, did not deserve, and did not have a right to, right? They're going to get a land and a bunch of possessions, and they've not done anything to attain that stuff on their own. God's going to give it to them. He gives us an inheritance as well. We're waiting for it. And Jesus is why we have hope that all of this happens. Look what Luke chapter 1 says. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. This is Zechariah talking prophecy is, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, right? Jesus is coming. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And we have hope because Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. And then lastly, number two, our identity should lead us to believe. After all of this, it falls back on the people. What will you do with these reminders? Moses, people, what will you do? No new information here, but still an argument to believe. Believe what you already know. We know from verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. They didn't listen to Moses. They let their broken spirits and their harsh conditions speak louder. The question for us today is, will we do the same or not? We can't allow hardships to break us into not believing him anymore. We must see how the hardships do not negate the promises. He's not a liar. Remember Pharaoh said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it hard on you so that your people say, God's a liar. He's not going to help us. He's not going to deliver us. Pharaoh was not only not listening to God, he was working against him. He said, I'm going to make it such where, where you think your God's a liar. It's the same ploy the enemy will use tomorrow morning. When new trials and troubles hit us, will we believe God's a liar or not? Or will we keep trusting his promises? The Westminster Confession of Faith says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That's him and his sovereignty. He's in control. 
that does not change. The goal then for God's people is for his people to know him, to trust him, and when everything in life changes, to always see him as the one to count on. We have to know him and trust him. And to do so at a, at, a, at a depth and a level that when everything in life changes on a Monday morning, we still see him as the one to count on. It's like a classroom or a lesson objective that a teacher would have for the day. Here's the goal for the day. Here's the instruction. Because God keeps saying, you're going to know. You're going to know this. You're going to know this. You're going to know this. The question is, will we know it and will we believe it? The application as we leave today is, will we believe him and trust him? with what we already know about him when new trials and troubles come. Because we're not getting new information. Like What I would have told you last week if you told me you were going through a miscarriage is the same thing that I'm telling myself and my wife today. Nothing new. No new information to give you, no new promises to claim. It's still the same old ones. The same good ones, the same sufficient ones, right? Will we believe him and trust him with what we already know about him? When new trials and troubles come, those general promises are good enough if we'll choose to believe them. And even if we don't get our specific follow-up questions answered, they're still good enough. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you, and we praise you for your goodness. We thank you that you remain in control today, that even as though our life may change in ways that we don't desire this week, you remain in control, you remain committed to us, and you remain compassionate. I don't have to question those things, Lord, and I thank you for that. I thank you that you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that you remain their God today. That's who I want to be my God, a God who's that committed. Thank you for being a covenant-keeping God. Lord, I pray that the reminders that we've heard today would keep us counting on you this week when new trials and new troubles come. Lord, we don't want to run away from you. We don't want to doubt you. We don't want to question you. Lord, we want to run to you. Lord, help us to see that we're your people. And because of that, we can believe in you and trust that you're you're in control, you're committed, and you're compassionate towards us. Lord, help help to sustain us in our faith when trials and difficulties come this week that we would see those truths, we'd be reminded of those truths. Give us the discipline and the grace to gather next week to sing and to remind ourselves once again of those truths. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.